father's hired workers have more than enough food, and here I am dying of hunger. I'll get up, go to my father, and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired workers. So he got up and went to his father. But while the son was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran, threw his arms around his neck, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father told his servants, Quick, bring out the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Then bring the fattened calf and slaughter it. And let's celebrate with the feast. Because this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Now, his older son was in the field. As he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he summoned one of the servants, questioning what these things meant. Your brother is here, he told him. And your father has slaughtered the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. Then he became angry and didn't want to go in. So his father came out and pleaded with him. But he replied to his father, Look, I have been slaving many years for you, and I have never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me a goat so that I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your assets with prostitutes, you slaughtered the fattened calf for him. Son, he said to him, You are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice, because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. This is the word of God. Let's go to our Lord in prayer, and then we'll get into it. Lord God, we just thank you so much for your word. We thank you, Jesus, for you giving this parable uh, when you did, and we thank you for having Luke write it down by the power of the Holy Spirit so that it is, it is your inerrant, infallible word. We pray, Lord, we would learn from this what you mean to teach us with this. I pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to, to receive what's in your word, that you would rebuke us where we need that rebuking, that you would encourage us where we need that encouragement. I pray you would remove me as much as possible from this, Lord, so that I don't mess your word up. I pray, Lord, if there's anybody here who doesn't know you, just by hearing your word and your gospel, that they will come to you and be saved. And Lord, again, I pray that all of your own, those who already believe on you, Lord, that we would hear your word and we would be transformed and changed by it. And we would conform ourselves to your word, to where we will live in a manner that imitates our Lord Jesus. God, we just pray all these things to you. And, and we pray it for your glory, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please have a seat. Now, I, I think as Christians, most of us are generally happy about the idea of people being saved. We love to see it. We love to see a, a new believer take those new steps of saving faith, things like being baptized and, and seeing them get in their Bibles more. That, that pumps us up. We like seeing it. But I also think it's sometimes true for some of us that there are some kinds of unbelievers where deep down we might not want to see that, where maybe we would rather see them destroyed and none of us would say it out loud, but sometimes these may be in our thoughts. In Luke chapter 15, that kind of sinner that people didn't want to be saved were the tax collectors. This was a sin of a special kind for those people back then, and they just wanted to see tax collectors face God's judgment. And it goes without saying... We have sinners in our society that tempt us at times to feel that way. This is especially the case with the culture war, right? Because it's clear that there's clusters of sinners or, or groups or activist groups that really have the goal of making life difficult for Christians. 
mainly because we oppose their immoral insanity. And so perhaps we see them as enemies instead of lost sheep needing to be saved. And that's why Luke chapter 15 is such an important chapter of the Bible, because it helps us get out of our current situation and we can look at things from God's perspective. And God's perspective is simple. He loves saving the lost. He even loves saving the worst of the lost. And that has been the whole point of this whole chapter. In the first two sermons and in this third sermon, the point of this chapter is this. It's been the same. What it shows us is there is immeasurable joy in God over one sinner that repents. Okay, so this is what is within God, joy. And what it leads to is God then rejoicing over one sinner that repents. Now, how do we know this? Well, Jesus, the Lord, has been showing us this truth through three parables. The lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son. Now, this morning, we're going to finish the text by focusing on the part that really asks us personally whether or not we agree with God in his joy over the salvation of sinners. Will we rejoice with God as he saves the worst sinners in our society? Now, given that the focus of this entire chapter is on the fact that God rejoices over the salvation of sinners, there comes a point in the chapter where it necessarily asks you and it asks me personally this question, do we rejoice in the salvation of sinners? So far, the three parables have shown us unmistakably that God labors intently for the salvation of the lost because it brings him joy. That's what God does. Okay, the end of the chapter, though, is going to focus on us. But before we get there, I want, us to, I want to review what we've seen so far. First, you had the parable of the lost sheep. People were compared to sheep. And if one gets lost by wandering, the shepherd leaves the 99 safe sheep to go and rescue that one that's lost. And sure, it doesn't make sense from a human perspective to leave the 99 to go after the one. But this is the amazing and unstoppable love of God at work. And undergirding that parable of the lost sheep, if you remember, was Ezekiel 34, what God taught Israel 600 years earlier through the prophet Ezekiel. In Ezekiel 34, there were three points that God made. First, the leaders of Israel failed the people of Israel, the sheep. They were failed shepherds. They didn't care for the injured. They didn't fetch the strays. They didn't seek after the lost. Instead, they did only what was comfortable. As a result, they were failed shepherds. The second point God made is that he declared himself to be the good shepherd. Since the shepherds failed, God would find the lost sheep. God would fetch the strays. He would bandage the injured. He would feed them and he would care for them. The appointed leaders failed, but God never fails. And so he will search far and wide for the sheep that are lost. And then the third thing God says in Ezekiel 34 is he made it clear the means that he would use to go after the sheep. He would appoint one leader, one shepherd the son of David, the Messiah. He would be the shepherd over God's people and he would shepherd God's people God's way. So here we are in Luke 15 and here's the Messiah, Jesus. And he is faulting the shepherds of Israel of his day because they're guilty of the same thing that the shepherds were guilty of in Ezekiel's day. So here you have Jesus, the good shepherd. He's here and he's rescuing those who are lost. He will go after them. Now, those who repent, meaning those who turn away from their sins, they will be saved. Those who believe, meaning they believe on the Lord Jesus to the exclusion of all other gods, they will be saved. Those who repent and those who believe will be saved. And the point that the text keeps going back to 
is that not only will they be saved, but God will celebrate their salvation. He will have a party over their salvation. And again, why? Because of the point of the text, there's immeasurable joy in God over one sinner that repents. And so our Lord's point was loud and clear with the parable of the lost sheep. The second parable accomplished the same thing. Instead of a lost sheep, now it was a lost coin. A woman loses a valuable coin, and so she searches for it in a manner that doesn't make any sense. I mean, the labor to find it is probably more valuable than the coin itself. But she valued the coin. And when she found it, she celebrated her recovery of the coin with all of her neighbors. And then Jesus tells us in the same way, God will search for those who are lost and he will celebrate with his angels when one sinner repents. Well, after that, we then come to the third parable, which is the most intense of the three. And I started it last time and we didn't finish it last time because it was long, right? And so it's the parable of the lost son has three main characters, the father and then an older son and a younger son. So you have these two sons, the younger hates his father hates his people, and more than that, he hates God. And I'll just say this real quickly, that is the true condition of all sinners, all people who are not believers, even if they blind themselves to it. Some people will say, I don't hate God, I'm just indifferent to the idea of God. Well, that's my, that might be what they tell themselves. But the reality is they want to be their own king, their own God, and as a result, they hate the real God that exists. They're suppressing his truth and unrighteousness. And that's exactly what the younger son was like. So this younger son demands his inheritance, which is equivalent to saying, Dad, I wish you were dead. Will you die already? Since you won't, just give me my money, which was a horrible thing. And the crazy thing is the father gives him the money. He gives it to him, right? And he then, the son takes this money, takes this, this wealth to a faraway land, and he squanders it on sin. And then what the parable tells us is eventually he's broke, a famine hits the land, and he now becomes a slave to a pagan. It's in this low point that he finally recognizes his sins. He's given eyes to see the reality of the situation. He finally sees himself as he really is, and he sees his father as he really is. The father's the good guy. He's been the good guy all along. So the son decides that he needs to repent. He needs to turn away from his sins and head back to his father. He recognizes he is not worthy to be a son anymore, so he is more than happy to be a slave. And this is so important. And the reason this is so important is for anyone to ever be saved. They first must come to this point. They must come to see the absolute wickedness of their sin. Their sin is not a small matter. It is cosmic treason against the great king of the universe. They must come to accept their own guilt. They must agree with God that they deserve to be condemned forever. But then they must also believe that God is merciful and compassionate, and he will forgive them if they turn from their sins and cast themselves before God's great and loving mercy. They must believe that salvation is only through Jesus Christ, God the Son. Jesus entered his own creation. He lived the perfect, holy life that we all failed to live. And if you believe on Jesus, he gives you the credit of his perfect score. He gives you the credit of all the good he did. And then he takes the punishment of every sin you ever have and ever will commit, and he paid for it on the cross. That's what happened on the cross. He took your punishment, and he gives you his reward. But he only does this for those who believe and repent. And so the younger son in the parable was finally at this point. He recognized his sin, and he recognized the goodness of his father. 
So he returned to ask to be a slave rather than a son. But we read last time when his father saw him from the distance, he was filled with compassion. He ran out to him, hugged him, and kissed him. Before the son could ever even announce his intention to be a slave, the father restored him to the status of a son. He put on the family robe and the family ring on the boy, and that signified he's a son. He also put sandals on his bare feet to signify that he's not a slave, because that's what that meant back then. And then he threw the biggest party people could throw in that culture back then. Why? He tells us. He says, because my son was dead, and now he's alive. Like the sheep and like the coin, his son was lost, but now he's found. And so in that celebration, he slaughtered this this, this uh, fattened calf, which would be like 500 pounds of meat. That would provide enough food for people to celebrate for days. And again, all of that is meant to paint the picture for us of what God does every single time a sinner gets saved. He celebrates. So coming back to my original question, that's what God does. But is that what we do when somebody gets saved? Do we share the heart of God? Do we share the heart of the good shepherd? Do we share the heart of Jesus? To help us answer that question, there is another son in this parable. There's an older son. And what we are going to see is that he does not share the heart of his father. He is not happy about the salvation of his brother. Now, based on the context, the older brother represents the Pharisees and the scribes, and the younger brother represents the tax collectors and the sinners. If you want to really quickly go back and look at verses 1 and 2 of the chapter, it sets the context. It says, all the tax collectors and sinners were approaching to listen to him. And the Pharisees and scribes were complaining. This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. And so the context of of how Jesus answers that is all three parables. See, the tax collectors were the worst of the worst sinners in Israel. And the people who hung out with them were really bad too. And so somehow they heard about Jesus. This guy might be the Messiah. He teaches like nobody has ever taught before. And he does miracles. So these guys come to hear him. The fact that the worst sinners want to come hear a holy man, who is the Messiah, most likely, right? And he is, but they were trying to figure this out. The fact that they wanted to come and hear him means their hearts were already being drawn back to God. Somebody hardened in their sin does not want to hear somebody like Jesus. But they were drawing near, which was showing that they were looking for a way back to God. And Jesus was willing to provide that way. But the religious experts saw this and were angry about it. How could he sit with such people and welcome them if he is the Messiah? And again, they forgot about Ezekiel 34. Had they had that in the forefront of their minds, they'd realize this is exactly what the Messiah is supposed to do. And so because of this situation, Jesus could not leave these religious leaders thinking that they're good to go. Even though they might be the 99 who didn't need to repent in the first parable, they are guilty of a different kind of sin. Okay, so he doesn't have to go out and chase them across the wilderness to find them. But there's a sin in their own backyard that has to be dealt with, and they have to repent of that. And that's why in the third parable, there's two sons. The Pharisees are the older son. Now, through the younger son, Jesus was talking to the tax collectors and the sinners, telling them there is still hope. There is a way back. This is what it looks like. With the older son, Jesus is going to rebuke the Pharisees for missing the heart of God and turning into a bunch of compassionless grumblers. And as such, it's fair to say that Jesus may also be talking to many Christians through the older son, 
especially people who've been Christians for a long time. Like the Pharisees, we may have been walking with God for some time. We might be those who study His Word every day intently, and so we've come to hate sin. We've separated ourselves from the things of the world. We don't watch their sex-saturated entertainment. We don't enjoy their vulgar stand-up comics anymore. We abstain from the most immoral forms of their music. I mean, some of it's good, but some of it you just can't listen to. We dress modestly. We don't cuss, right? And the list could go on and on. And by the way, these things are all good. Growing in God's word should produce godliness in us, and it should reduce our worldliness, right? That's all good. But here's the problem. It's very possible that as we reject the worldliness in ourselves, we come to be hypercritical of the people of the world. We start to look at them like the Pharisees looked at these tax collectors, as people unworthy who just need to be condemned. So we stop caring about their salvation. We start to see them as political enemies since they oppose the Bible on every point and want to seem to make it a matter of public policy. Okay? And so as such, we start to secretly hope for their judgment rather than their salvation, even if we wouldn't say that out loud. And when one of them does get saved, we're good with it. But we don't celebrate like God does. And we're certainly not out there laboring for their salvation, right? If we were, right, like let's take one of the big evils of our day, abortion. We're all praying that it'll be over, right? But how many of us are actually going and standing in front of the Planned Parenthood trying to save the soul of the person that's going there for that evil purpose? Some of us, but most of us don't right? So we'll be happy when somebody repents, but are we laboring for their salvation? Most of the time, we're not even trying. Instead, what we do is we stay in our Christian silo rather than seeking to save the lost. We stay where we're comfortable with the people who speak the the Christian language we speak, but we're not going to go out there and embed ourselves in a lost world in order to seek and save the lost. And that is why the end of this parable is so important. It corrects that. So let's look at the heart of God for both the sinner and the saint that's heart has grown cold, right? That's what we're going to see here. Let's look at how the father deals with the older son. So again, picture the setting. There's this huge celebration going on. It's loud. It's joyful. The father is stoked. The younger son is stoked. The village is stoked because the father is stoked and they're eating a lot of cow, okay? They're feasting. They're singing. They're dancing, This is a very audible joy. Well, with all this audible joy in the background, verse 25 tells us there is one person here who is not stoked. So let's look at it. Jesus says this in verse 25. He says, Now his older son was in the field. As he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. Now there's a couple observations we can make just from that. This older son may live at home, but he is distant in his heart. Someone who is connected to the home would not be taken by surprise at a rapturous celebration in his own home. But we have to remember, on paper, this older son looks good, right? Is he not where he's supposed to be? Yeah, he's in the field, right? Is he not doing what he's supposed to be doing? Yeah, he's doing that. He's working the land. And I bring that up to tell you this. One of the most tragic truths in the world is that it is possible to be exactly where you're supposed to be, but at the exact same time, you're in the wrong place. And that seems like a contradiction, but I'd rather say it's a paradox. There are many people visibly in the church that hide in the church, yet their heart is not actually in the church. There are many people in the place where God is And yet that is the one place where they are trying to hide their true heart from God as if they can and hide it from others. Think about it. 
after Adam sinned, but before God expelled him from the garden, he was still in God's place. Yet Adam used the very trees of God's garden to try to hide himself from God. He used the very leaves of God's garden to try to cover up his true condition. He was hiding from God in God's place. And I bring this up because I think the older son, in some sense, was in a more dangerous place than the younger son. See, the younger son's condition was obvious. There's no ability for the younger son to deceive himself into thinking he's a good guy, that he's righteous. No, he was actively defying God. He was laughing about it. He was partying it up. It was horrible, right? But at least it's obvious. You know his condition. The older son, though, he was in the father's household, outwardly serving, doing the father's will. He could deceive himself into thinking he's the good son. All the while, though, his heart is clearly not with his father. In fact, his heart might be just as bitter towards his dad as the younger son's heart was before he repented. Now, I know verse 25 doesn't tell, all, tell us all of that yet, but the upcoming verses definitely will. What I wanted to do is show that we have a hint here. The son was distant even though he was nearby. He was distant enough to be disconnected from the father. Had he been connected to his dad in a meaningful way and like really loved his dad, then he would know every day his dad's out looking on the horizon. Is my boy coming home? That's what his dad's doing every day. And, and, and so what else other than the return of the younger son could cause an impromptu celebration of this magnitude? He would know my brother's got to be back for a party like this. The fact that he had no idea why there was a party shows that he didn't know his father as well as he might think. And so I bring that up as a warning to us. Is it possible that you are hiding in plain sight? Your attitude towards the lost will be one key determiner of that. And I'll explain how a little later, because you're only bitter towards the lost if you're first bitter towards God. And so your work on behalf of the salvation of the lost is a very relevant factor on this question. But anyway, getting back to the parable, in verse 26, Jesus continues. It says, so... He summoned one of the servants, questioning what these things meant. Now, notice verse 25 already told us he's near the house. He sees the party going on. He could have entered the party himself. He could have spoken to his father directly, but he summons a servant. That tells you something right there. I don't know about you, but when I see people having joyous fun, I want to join in with them unless it's bad what they're doing, right? But otherwise, I want to join in. Hey, what's going on? What are you guys all happy about? You know, or whatever. And if there was a party in my own house, you better believe I'd be joining the festivities. And yet that is not the first thought of the older brother. His first thought is, what's going on here? Why are people happy? Why are people dancing? Why are they playing music? What in the world is there to celebrate? And that tells you he has no joy. He's a bitter person. And why is he so bitter? Did the younger son make him that way? No. Because think about it. It would make no sense. The younger son cannot take anything that belonged to the older son. Two-thirds of the estate belonged to the older son due to the laws back then. One-third belonged to the younger. If the younger goes and squanders his one-third, he's not able to take any of the two-thirds that belongs to the older one. So it can't be the younger son why he's bitter. And I just say this to let you know that every bitter person I've ever counseled always blames their bitterness on other people. It's always somebody else's fault, but it's not. You're bitter for your own reason. And it's the same thing with this older son. And that much will become very clear after he realizes what the celebration's all about. In verse 27, 
The servant answers him. So look at verse 27. It says this. Your brother is here, he told him. And your father has slaughtered the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. Now, if the older brother shared the heart of the good shepherd, this would be great news, would it not? My brother's alive? Excellent. He came home. I was so worried he, he got himself killed out there. But he's home. Magnificent. I'm happy for him. I'm happy for my dad since I know how bad my dad missed him. I could totally see eating a fattened calf over all this. After all, he's back safe and sound, which in the Greek just means well and whole. He didn't lose a foot or a shoulder or his nose when he was out there. He's come back whole. He's well. He's safe and sound. That's what the son should be thinking. But he's not thinking that. Look at the first half of verse 28. It says, then he became angry and didn't want to go in. Now, the word for anger here means to swell up with anger. You know how anger sometimes boils over? or simmers and heats up and then volcanic explosion. That's what this word is conveying. And it's not him working himself up into the anger. It's not like he's trying to make himself angry. The verb is passive. He became angry. That means the anger happened to him. It was already a condition of his heart, a natural condition of his heart. What was it that caused the anger? Him simply hearing the good news that his brother is safe and sound. He hears that. And then anger comes out of nowhere within him. Again, he didn't conjure it up. This was the natural condition of his heart. His heart was so hard toward his father and his brother that this good news seemed like it was bad news. And so he refused to go into the house and to join the party. Now, as I've already said, the real hero in this parable is the father. He loves both sons. Okay, And when he notices that the older brother refuses to come in and celebrate, He's not going to just leave him out there in that condition. Just like he's off looking for the younger son, he also is looking towards his older son. He's not coming in? Fine, I'll go to him. The good shepherd seeks the one who's lost, even if that one's lost in his own backyard. So the second half of verse 28 says this. It says, so his father came out and pleaded with him. Now the word plead means to, to urge, to implore. That's what the good shepherd does. He goes after the one sheep that's lost, and at the same time, he knows the 99 so well that he could spot when one of them is lost in plain sight among the other 99. They're just lost in a different way. So the father goes out to him. Well, when the older son sees the father, he doesn't want to hear it. He doesn't. Just like the younger son had a speech memorized and ready to go, so does the older son. But his speech is heartbreaking. Look at verse 29. Jesus says, But... He replied to his father, look, I have been slaving many years for you and I have never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me a goat so that I could celebrate with my friends. Now there is so much resentment here. And this son thinks he's entirely in the right. His accusations against his father here. And even though he, he thinks his words are right, he gives away a whole bunch of sin in his heart here. He's showing everything that's wrong in his heart. As a biblical counselor, I'm just like writing it down as I'm reading it. I'm like, oh, he doesn't even see this. So let me tell you some of the things that are wrong just in what's there. How he's putting his heart on the table and showing his sinful thoughts. First, look how he starts off. He says, look. Like, look here, Dad. You're going to hear a piece of my mind. There's already a tinge of disrespect. He's not honoring his father. doesn't feel like he has to. Second, it shows us how he sees himself. He says, I have been slaving many years for you. He's a son. 
And yet, he's accusing the father of treating him like a slave. And let me just pause for a moment. If you feel like serving God is drudgery and slavery, to where you wish you could be free of it, then you are like this older son. Only a bitter and sinful heart can misconstrue sonship as slavery. And listen, as a son or a daughter, as one who inherits stuff, don't you still have obligations to the estate? As a kid, did you not still have to do chores? Okay, so of course, being a son, you're still going to be working, but it's not slavery. A slave owns and inherits nothing, but the son owns the full estate now. He owns the two-thirds. That one-third's gone. So everything that's there technically belongs to the son. He's not a slave, but his anger and bitterness toward the father makes him twist reality in his mind. You treat me like a slave rather than a son. That's what bitterness does. Well, bitterness gets even worse when it's mixed with self-righteousness. The third thing we see is just that. He says, in all these years of being your slave, quote, I have never disobeyed your orders, end quote. As a son, I doubt that is true. As a father, I know that isn't true, right? And so the point is, he's not been a perfect son, but he thinks he has. And self-righteous people tend to focus on what they do right, and then they minimize what they do wrong. They find a way to make it so small of a thing that they push way off to the corner that they don't, it doesn't even factor in their assessment of themselves. And so they prize their outward obedience. They minimize their own disobedience. And so because they see themselves as a good, obedient person, they feel entitled. And that's the fourth sinful mentality we notice here. It's entitlement. He thinks he's owed something. He says, I have slaved for you. I've never disobeyed you, quote, yet you never gave me a goat so that I could celebrate with my friends, end quote. In other words, to put it in common vernacular, what the heck, dad? I bust my back for you. I did what you told me. I do it on a daily basis. And what do I have to show for it? I never asked for a fattened calf, but even a goat would have been nice. Even a small party with my friends would have been nice. I'm not asking for this giant feast. Just a a goat and a small party with my friends. And notice who's not included in his fantasy, his dad. He didn't say, you never gave me a goat to celebrate with you and my friends. He left his dad out. He left him out. So not only does he feel owed for doing what a son's supposed to do anyway, right? But he envisions his happiest moment being without the father. His dream is him and his buddies without his dad. And so at the end of the day, is he so different from the younger brother? The younger brother was just willing to take what was in his sinful heart and do it out in the open. The older brother kept it buried in his heart. It's what he truly wanted. But as the so-called good son, he suppressed it. On the surface, he did what society thinks the respectable son will do. But in his heart, he too wants a party on his terms without his father in the picture. That's what's in his heart. And I go back to this statement that a question or, you know, just a a realization. If you would be happy, if you're a Christian because you don't want to go to hell and you want to have eternal life, if that's all it is, you're wrong. If you would be happy having eternal life without Jesus being there, I dare say you probably don't have it. Okay? What makes eternal life so awesome is we will be in the presence of God forever, that we get God and a byproduct of that's eternal life. It's not that we get eternal life and a byproduct's God. No, it's reversed. This son just wants his reward without his father. It's a bad place to be. So far, if we analyze his speech, it's the opposite of the younger son. 
Remember, the younger son repented. And so he started off by acknowledging his sin. I have sinned against God, and I've sinned again in your sight, God. The Father. I've sinned in your sight, Father. Right? That's how the younger son starts off. The older son, it's opposite. I didn't sin against you. I slaved for you. Okay? I've done what's right. The younger one says, I'm not worthy to be your son. The older one says, I've never disobeyed your orders. I'm the only one worthy to be your son. It's what's hidden behind that, right? And then the younger one says, let me be a slave rather than a son just so I could be in your presence. The older says, give me a goat so I could party with my friends outside of your presence. I mean, his heart is so hard at this point when, when you look at this. And I think this is a, it's instructive that Christ is first showing the attitude of the older son towards his father. You would think this is going to be about his attitude towards his brother. But notice, first, his attitude is against his father. Remember, the context of this all is verses 1 and 2. The Pharisees had a bad attitude toward Jesus welcoming sinners. The two sons represent the two kinds of people, the sinners and the Pharisees. But before he exposes the Pharisees' bad attitude to the sinners, Jesus is showing them that first and foremost, it starts out with the bad attitude towards God. Your bad attitude towards these sinners is first because you have a bad attitude towards God. It starts by hiding in plain sight, hiding in God's sanctified places. It continues by secretly desiring to live your own way, but on the surface you're keeping God's commands instead. So that then causes bitterness to boil against God. In fact, you start to see what you should do anyway. You start to see it as a sacrifice. Like the idea of saying no to sin and saying yes to obeying God, things we should be doing because He's God and we're not, right? That's just what we should do, but no, we see it as a sacrifice, as if we've done something special. And sometimes people will start to think that God now owes me for this. I've served Him. I've said no to sin, okay? I haven't done what's in my heart. God owes me something. And the longer that you don't get what you desire, the more bitter you get. And that kind of poison in your heart is what will then cause you to have an extremely bad attitude towards sinners as well, especially sinners who are now trying to make it right. The attitude would be like this. Oh, no, I I don't think so. I've been busting my hump for years, and I've never jumped into your depravity. But now all of a sudden you want to make it right, and you think you're going to get the same status I have? No stinking way. That's the heart. That's the heart behind this. That's the heart of the self-righteous person. They fail to see the sinful heart that pollutes every aspect of their thinking. And then they take that bitterness out on others. So verse 29 showed the bitterness towards the father, a.k.a. the bitterness towards God. Verse 30 then is going to capture the bitterness towards the brother or the other sinners, right? So the older son complains in verse 30, if you look at it. He says, but... When this son of yours came, who has devoured your assets with prostitutes, you slaughtered the fattened calf for him. Now, you could feel the venom there. Again, the word but, starting it off that way, that's a contrast. Okay, He said in the previous verse, I busted my back for you. I obeyed you. I did everything, and I haven't even got a goat. And then this no good loser shows up. And it's not a goat that you give him. You give him the stinking fattened calf. Are you kidding me? And notice, he won't even acknowledge that the younger son is his brother. He calls him this son of yours. But when this son of yours comes, he's not my brother. He's your son. You restored him. So he's related to you, but not to me. I washed my hands of him when he pulled that stunt. In fact, another interesting thing here 
is that the older brother accused him of, quote, devouring your assets with prostitutes. Now, nowhere does the text actually say he was with prostitutes. It just says he squandered it with foolish living. But the brother assumes he blew it on prostitutes. And I'm just going to say for the record, he's probably right. A young man goes as far away from home as he can with a boatload of money. Yeah, he's looking for anonymity. And a guy who's looking to be anonymous is looking to sow his wild oats. So I'm pretty sure he did waste the money on prostitutes. And likely the older brother's just thinking, Proverbs 29.3, a man who loves wisdom brings joy to his father. That's me, the good son. But the one who consorts with prostitutes destroys wealth. That's this guy. Punk, right? But again, what's interesting is even though it wasn't said directly in the parable, it's interesting that this was the older brother's first thought. Not the booze, not the gambling, but the prostitutes. Some scholars have suggested that this means that's what he's wishing he could do deep down, but he never did. And because he never did it, he's resentful that it looks like his brother got away with it. He got to go do the one thing I didn't do that I want to do. He does it and he gets restored. Because think about it. If you contrast verses 29 and 30, he's contrasting, I have never disobeyed you with he wasted your money on prostitutes. Those are what's contrasted, right? That I didn't even get a goat, but he gets a fattened calf, right? He blew the son of yours, not my brother. The son of yours blew money on hookers and he gets the feast. And so... It does seem like this is on his mind. And that's one more thing that's wrong with the older brother. Listen, if you feel like a wretched sinner got away with sin because God forgave them of their sin, then you're already admitting their sin appeals to you. If you think they got away with it, like this isn't fair, you're already letting the whole world know, I wish I could have done what they did. Their sin's appealing to you. Because if your heart sees sin the way that God sees sin, then sin is nothing. It's something you never get away with. You never get away with sin. It leaves its mark. It leaves its scar. It has its consequences. You wouldn't think spending money on prostitutes was a good thing. But if you deep down did crave that sin in your heart and only resented it uh, on the outside, or only resisted it on the outside, excuse me, then you would be thinking like the hypocrites that God rebukes in Malachi. Pastor Josh has been spending time in Malachi showing us that Israel as a whole thought they were checking all the blocks of their religion, but they were hypocrites. And God gets to their heart in Malachi chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, which is identical to what we're seeing in the older brother. Here's what God accuses them of. He says, you have said it is useless to serve God. What have we gained by keeping his requirements and walking mournfully before the Lord of armies? So now we consider the arrogant to be fortunate. Not only do those who commit wickedness prosper, they even test God and escape. That's exactly what the older son's feeling like here. Only someone thinking in this sinful way would ever think repentant sinners are getting away with their sin. And what's even worse than that is if they come to Jesus and believe nobody got away with their sin. Jesus got punished for it. Jesus died on the cross for it. The Father poured his wrath out on that sin. But if you're like, no, not good enough, more wrath needs to befall them, then you're saying Jesus' suffering wasn't enough. It was enough for you it's enough for me, but not for thee. And again, hypocrisy. Now, instead, if, if you're thinking faithfully, you would be glad. You wouldn't be resentful. You'd be glad that you never fell so low. 
and had to deal with the wicked memories from the prostitutes or the diseases from them. You'd be thankful that God never let you slip so far, and then you would also be thankful that He saves those who have slipped that far. You would, be, uh, uh, you would marvel at His grace. You would marvel at His mercy. But that's not the heart of the older brother here. And so he needs to be corrected. And the father is going to correct him. Just like the father wouldn't let the younger son be a slave, but interrupted him to declare him as a son, in the same way the father cannot let the older son misconstrue this so badly. He needs to be corrected. And so the father does so. He corrects him in a way that is equally loving to how he dealt with the younger son. Look at verse 31. It says this, Son, he said to him, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. Now, the first word says it all here, son. This is where the English language fails us because we don't have a term of endearment for son. We just have the word son, okay? But this Greek word is something, technon, it's something that only a father would say to a son that he loves dearly. It's kind of like in Spanish when a dad looks at his grown son and calls him mijo. It's different than just the regular word for son. Now, the best that we can do in English is we could just picture the father saying, my child, my baby boy. He's a grown man, but my baby boy, you're always going to be my baby boy. And so, child, dear child, hear me. That's what's conveyed in this word son here. So despite the sinful heart of the older son, the father's still like, my little boy. Okay, you'll always be my little boy. He's not disowning him. He doesn't replace him with the younger son, as some try to use this parable for a misguided replacement theology. In fact, he's affirming this son as his son, and he acknowledges the good that he has done. He says, quote, you are always with me, end quote. In other words, that's him saying, like, I see that. You're here. The younger one took off. You didn't. You're always here with me. I see that, and I appreciate it. Son, I'm not taking away from you the fact that you didn't blow my money on prostitutes. I'm not taking away from you the fact that you have served me well. I I see that you try to obey me when I tell you to do stuff. You're always with me. And then he adds to this. He says, quote, and everything I have is yours, end quote. I'm not taking the two-thirds that belongs to you and giving it to him. No, the two-thirds is all I have left, and every bit of it's yours. Everything I have is yours. In other words, son, you were whining about a goat, but you have all the goats in the entire estate. You're complaining about me not caring about your service, but I see you as the dependable one who's always with me. I'm going to reward you. Your reward is better than a single fattened calf. In fact, with the wealth of the entire estate, you'll be able to acquire more than one fattened calf in the course of your life. You are not getting ripped off. And I think this whole way of the father dealing with the son is important because remember, this son represents the Pharisees and the scribes. Yes, some Pharisees are hypocrites and Jesus will denounce them as hypocrites at other places. But some Pharisees are not hypocrites. They're for the most part faithful, right? The problem is they have a bad attitude towards sinners. So they're judgmental and they seek justice rather than mercy. And so Jesus puts these words in the father's mouth here to affirm the faithfulness of those Pharisees. He's just not smacking down on these guys. You read between the lines, what the Father is saying here is, look, your obedience to the law, it has not gone, unno- it has not gone unnoticed. Your desire to stay away from sexual sin and drunkenness and all the other vices, that's a good thing. Your desire to teach Israel every single Shabbat in the synagogue is a good thing. 
Your goal to get Israel to go a single day without a single sin anywhere in the land, that's a noble goal. I'm not taking any of that from you. The Father sees that. So the Pharisees are not being rebuked for works righteousness in this parable. That will be a problem for some Pharisees, and they will be rebuked in other places where that's a problem. But for these Pharisees, the message Jesus is sending is different here. The rebuke is entirely about them not having the same heart as the Father when it comes to the lost sheep. And this is clear in the Father's conclusion in verse 32. If you look at verse 32, he says to the older son, he says, but we had to celebrate and rejoice because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. That verse is what this is all about. Boy, we are celebrating because something wonderful has happened. The dead has come alive. The lost has been found. One who was spiritually dead has been made alive like we were singing earlier. And proof is in the fact that he repented. This is something to celebrate. Therefore, the older brother must be rebuked for not seeing this. Additionally, he's rebuked for not seeing him as he really is, his brother. Notice that the older son said, this son of yours. The father corrects him in verse 32. He says, this brother of yours. This brother of yours. He's not going to let him get away with that. Now, he's saying it in a loving way. But no matter how mad you are, older son, it doesn't change reality. He is your brother. Don't reduce him merely to my son. He is your brother. And you have a responsibility to love your brother. And so Jesus' rebuke ultimately in all of this is telling the Pharisees this. Concerning the tax collectors and the sinners, he's saying, you called them sinners. You reduced them down to that label as if that's, that's it. You said, I welcomed sinners. But don't forget, they are Israelites too. And as such, they are your brothers. And rather than being angry that I am welcoming them, can you not remove the scales from your eyes and actually see what's happened? They came to hear me teach. They want to come back to God. They want to repent. That's why they're here. And yet all you can see is what they've done in the past. Are you not looking at what God, the good shepherd, is doing with them right now in the present? He brought the lost sheep to the shepherd that he appointed for them. Is that something we should complain over? Or is that something we should celebrate? That's the message that he's giving to the Pharisees here. And I say all that, and I got to be careful in how I say this. A famous pastor that I really, really like, John MacArthur, says the whole point of this parable is that the, the older son kills the father, even though the text doesn't say it. He's like, the startling, shocking ending is that the, the older son kills the father. That's nowhere even hinted in the text. And so again, I, I follow Johnny Mac on a lot, but on that one, he's wrong. Luke does this a lot in his parables. He leaves them open-ended, especially when it comes to the Pharisee figure. Right, So to the, the tax collectors, he's saying, are you going to be like the younger son and repent? If so, you'll be saved. If not, you won't. But then he's leaving it open for the older brother. Are you finally going to share the father's heart or not? If you don't, then you too shall be lost. Right. So he's keeping it open so that the audience could say, which one am I going to be? That's his point with it. He's not making some invisible point that something happens that's not in the text, but we could picture it. So anyhow, point is, are you going to be like the father here? Are you going to have God's heart for the lost? That's why this is open-ended. Or are they going to stay hard in their hearts? That's what this means. And loved ones, the same thing is being said to us. You have no reason to ever think you're being ripped off if a sinner gets saved after a crazy life. 
You have no reason to feel cheated because somebody who lived in a vile way truly repents right before he dies. Oh, stupid deathbed conversion. No, you have no reason to feel ripped off for that. You have no reason to feel he got away with sin because, as I said, we shouldn't be desiring what he did anyway. Furthermore, as the Father in heaven celebrates those who repent, don't you hear him telling you that all he has is already yours? If you believe on Jesus, if you've been with them for a long time, he's telling you, all I have is yours. So a party isn't happening for you every day. But guess what you do have? You have been given spiritual life by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit dwells inside of you. The third person of the Trinity, God himself, lives inside you and will remain there forever. You have been credited with all the righteousness of the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, God the Son. You are united with Jesus to such a degree where you will rule the whole world with him. You'll rule the nations. You will judge angels with Jesus. You will sit on his throne with him as he sits on the Father's throne with him. And every single one of your sins is forgiven. You have been adopted, as we sang earlier, by the Father into his household, meaning all that he has is yours. You will inherit it all. And yet you feel ripped off? I get mad if people are clapping and singing at a baptism. Are you kidding me? We clapped and sang for yours too. And you got all this other stuff. You got, I'm not sure if anybody feels that way, but just in case. Nobody's ever confessed that. I get mad when people are happy at baptisms. But just in case, just in case. Look, none of us, none of us who are in the Lord have been ripped off. Okay, and, and if you feel like you've been ripped off, then again, you're like the older son, not realizing that the very land he's working is his own inheritance. He's no slave. Okay, so there's no point to get mad at the good you've done. So you've disciplined yourself to stay away from fornication, pornography, drugs, and drunkenness and adultery. You've made sure not to watch the shows that are filled with sex and nudity, even though your coworkers and friends at school do nothing but talk about how much they like those shows. And then you kind of feel left out, but you still discipline yourself to stay away from it nevertheless. You've stayed devoted to your spouse, even though you see uh, unbelievers divorce and remarry as often as they change outfits. You've continued to love your spouse, even though the spouse isn't perfect. And even though you've started to see age change them, you still chose to stay with them despite your coworkers who divorce and marry somebody half their age and then brag it up as if they got an upgrade. But you didn't do that. You didn't do that. You spent money on church tithes and missions and all that stuff, money that could have been spent on gadgets and pleasure. And so now you have less things to show for yourself than your neighbor. You've done the right things. You've disciplined yourself in a biblical way. And so let me ask you this. When that guy comes to the Lord much later in life after all that sin, are you really going to feel ripped off because he got saved and got to indulge in that sin that you stayed away from? Really? You don't think God saw your faithful living? Like he said to the older son, you're always here with me. You don't think God sees that? You don't think God takes into account all the times you mortified sin as it crept up in your heart? You don't think God cherished your tears in a bottle those times you cried in repentance because you failed him and you pleaded with him not to fail him again? You don't think God cherished that and, and, and that you warmed his heart with that? Listen, your reward will be great. The eternal state is not communism where we all end up with the exact same thing. 
Listen, all who are saved, yes, we are equally saved by grace through faith alone and not by works. But the rewards that you're going to get for all eternity are going to be based on how faithful you have been. And so God takes all your faithfulness into account. Every bit of it, you're not getting ripped off. So here's the thing we longtime believers need to, to, to think about that we need to take from this. First, we need to purge our hearts from our hearts any bitterness towards God or others. Our bitterness towards others comes first because we're bitter to God, towards God. We feel like we got a raw deal, yet, have all those, we, yet we have all those benefits I just mentioned. All that's His is ours. We think we deserve maybe a more agreeable spouse that is my shadow rather than my nemesis. No, anyway, a, a more agreeable spouse or, a, or better behaved kids or a higher paying job or more recognition from those around us. And when we start thinking of our works and service to God as quid pro quo, that, that God, I did this for you, and so why aren't you doing this for me? Then your bitterness at God will make you bitter towards the people He is calling you to serve and love. That's just what will happen. And so we need to purge that from us. We also need to purge from our hearts any thought that we are missing out on sin and that people who indulge in it and get forgiven later are somehow getting a better deal. Let's pretend hypothetically that all that stuff is good to the flesh and leaves no consequence, which by the way, that's not true. But let's just say that's the case, right? The point is it's all temporary. It wears out. But the rewards for your faithfulness last forever. It's the treasure in heaven Jesus is talking about that never wears out. To wish that you had the temporary sin here rather than the forever rewards there is like having a Lamborghini, but wishing instead you had a kid's bike with training wheels with two flat tires and a broken bell. It just doesn't make any sense. And then you're mad that you don't have that little bike. Okay? No, the point is what you're going to get is so much better. Okay? So much better. But let's be real. The sinful stuff isn't good. It's not innocent. Okay? It leaves its scar on you. I'm going to use a Lord of the Rings analogy here. But in Lord of the Rings, nobody wields the ring of power. The ring of power wields you. Okay? In the same way, you don't indulge in sin. As much as you think you indulge in sin, sin is indulging in you. Sin is using you in order to leave you desolate. And it leaves its scars. Okay? So those people are not getting a better deal in the long run. Be thankful if you haven't gone that deep into it. And if you have, be thankful that God is still willing to save you nevertheless. His grace is so amazing. If we can purge our hearts of bitterness and realize how blessed we really are by all the benefits of God, then we will want others to have the same blessings. We will not seek their destruction, but their salvation. And if we could purge our hearts of the idea that sinners are getting away with something, whereas we're not, then we're going to pity them. We're going to see their condition as slavery because that's what it is. And like the good shepherd, we're going to try to pull them out of that slavery. We're going to seek them like the good Lord and good shepherd sought us. And most importantly, if we could remember that none of us were born as the 99, but all of us started out as the one sheep that was wandering and needed saving, then maybe just maybe we'll have a heart for those sheep that are still lost out there. We will share the Lord's heart to save them. Because consider this, Peter makes it clear that we were those lost sheep. First Peter chapter 2, verses 24 and 25, speaking of Jesus, he says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, so that having died to sins, we might live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were like sheep going astray. But you have now returned to the shepherd 
and overseer of your souls. So if you consider what he's saying there, look, we, we were once dead, but now we're alive. You were once that lost sheep, but you're found. But it wasn't cheap. It wasn't just him walking across a field and finding you. The Son of God had to become a man and take your sins on his body and be nailed to that cross or tree to pay for your debt. Okay? And then he had to earn perfect righteousness before that so he could give you the credit of it. That's what it took for him to save you, that one lost sheep. And that same thing he did for you, he does for anybody who repents and believes on him. Yet he's called us to be the ones to take that good news to all the lost sheep after there. So he loved you. He chased it after you when you were the one. We are also supposed to be chasing after the one. So if there is immeasurable joy in God over every sinner that repents, then there must be such joy in us. So get rid of the bitterness. Get rid of the desire for sin. And remember that you were once lost. And remember that God called you to bring salvation to the lost by preaching the gospel. Now, there's one thing that I've been wanting to say at some point during these three sermons, and so I'm just going to say it right here. Okay, we're supposed to go after the lost sheep. There's two kinds of lost sheep that we have to keep in mind. Okay, the first kind of wandering sheep is the person who's identified as a Christian and a member of your church, but they've gone wayward. They've wandered. Maybe they're in a sin they're not repenting of. Or they've abandoned the flock altogether. The point is they've wandered and they've gone wayward. And so how do we pursue them? The Matthew 18 process. It's kind of interesting. In Matthew 18, he starts off with the parable of the lost sheep and then rolls into the Matthew 18 process, right? So if one of our own starts to wander, how do we go after him? Like Jesus tells us to. One person goes and tries to bring him back. If he doesn't listen to the one then how many go? Three. And try to bring him back. And if he doesn't listen to the three, then who does Jesus say goes after him? The whole church. The whole church is supposed to go after that one and to show our love, like, please come back. Please turn away from the sin. And if the person doesn't listen to the church, then what does Jesus say? You have nothing to do with them after that. You turn them over to Satan for either their repentance or the destruction of the flesh. But you don't keep pursuing the one who identified as a believer. The pursuing is that Matthew 18 process. But then Paul and, and, and other parts of the Bible tell us once the church has done that, you don't drink or eat with such a person. You don't associate with them until they repent. The, the way you go after them is that Matthew 18 process. And so with that said, I do have to, to give us a little bit of a rebuke, okay, loved ones? Um, Member meeting after member meeting, we'll have people on the care list, which means the whole church is supposed to be going after them, sending them text messages of affirmation and love, asking them to come back, and consistently we have three to five people who do it and a hundred who don't. We are not going after the one who has wandered from us in that case. We're not, and we need to fix that. And the way we'll fix that is by having the heart of Jesus for that one who's wandering. Now, again, if that one can turn their back on the wide appeal of the whole church, then yeah, we, we wash our hands until they repent. So that's the first kind of lost sheep. The second kind of lost sheep are the unbelievers who've never come to Christ in the first place. They, they don't know him. And so we're to love them and do good for them. We're to embed ourselves into their lives so that we could speak into their lives. And most importantly, we're to tell them the gospel again and again, as many times as it takes, because we don't want them to be destroyed. And so, loved ones, may we do so. This chapter used three parables to prove to us that God has immeasurable joy over one sinner who repents. 
We need to have the same heart. And if we do, then our actions will match that. The older son was included to tell us this very thing. Without the older son, all we would have seen is that God takes joy in their salvation. But by Jesus adding the older son, he's calling us, his people, to have that same heart and take that same joy in the salvation of sinners and to pursue them and to chase after them. And so, loved ones, may we do so, and may we do so with everything we have. Now, if there's any unbeliever here, I'll just put it like this. You're the lost sheep. You are in your sins. And one day you will stand before God, and and He is a mighty judge. You are guilty. But God so loved the world that He sent His Son, Jesus, that whoever believes in Him would not perish but have eternal life. It's real simple. Jesus came, as I said, and earned that righteousness we need, and He takes the sin of sinners in His own account and pays the penalty so we wouldn't have to. If you turn from your sins and believe on Jesus as Lord, then you are forgiven of all of your sins. You are given that eternal life, and there will be a party in heaven, and there will be a party here for you as well, right? So don't stay in your sin. Don't walk away from God's offer of salvation. It's just a matter of you turning from your sins and and confessing that Jesus is Lord and believing in your heart that God raised him from the dead, right? So if you have any questions about this, come talk to me or any of the leaders after service, and we'll gladly walk you through this. What we're going to do is we're going to pray, and then I'm going to give the the communion warning, and then our worship team is going to lead us in one more song, and then we'll take the Lord's Supper together. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, we just thank you so